Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest, Kate Bowler, host of the podcast Everything Happens and the author of numerous best-selling books. Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills, so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet, and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit SpotPetIns.com slash sample-policy. Spot Pet Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. On this show, we pull apart the web in which we all live to understand who we are and why we're here. Pulling the Thread is about big questions, why we do what we do, how we can understand our own experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context, the ways in which we might begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and what's required to heal ourselves and our world. I'll be joined in conversation by luminaries and wise elders, Those who have laid tracks in their work and lives to help us bring meaning and understanding to a world that often feels chaotic and overwhelming. My hope is that these conversations spark moments of resonance and plant tiny seeds of awareness so that we might all collectively learn and grow. I'm really hopeful that that we're evolving past our our very hyper-individualistic understanding of like, my health, wealth, and happiness is the great goal, is the great goal. And that we're trying to like fold in a more collective and I hope generous sense that like our, 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 our lives will require love. Our lives will require courage and interdependence, you know, and that that's, it's probably going to never follow along any of our, our demographic, political, religious, sociocultural, you know, dreams that advertising companies have for us <laughs> but instead it's going to require a very collective sense of 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 what what can we become so says kate bowler and it's not without a dose of irony that professor kate bowler a prolific historian and author about the prosperity gospel was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer at the age of 35 after all her work had revolved around parsing a spiritual point of view that if you were a good person, a good Christian, good things would invariably happen, like wealth and health. From this diagnosis, she wrote a best-selling book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, and added an entirely new dimension to her scholarship at Duke. She's now in remission and the host of the Everything Happens podcast and has written several more bestsellers, including books of devotionals like The Lives We Actually Have, and good enough. In today's conversation, we covered a lot of ground, the inherent goodness of people, when we rise to the occasion and when we don't, and whether evil as an absolute exists. Okay, let's get to our conversation. 
Hey, congratulations. I'm so happy for you. You have Thank just you. crushed this last season. Every Thank time I you. see something with you in it and your beautiful face, I just feel joy. Thank you. Oh. Well, I feel like I'm just, I'm following or I'm trying to follow in your, your footsteps. <laughs> I don't know how you're minting these books so fast. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> in fact, I wrote about you in the final chapter because of your ability to sort of both vi visually visibly experience so many things simultaneously and almost Aww. instantaneously. Well, I'm halfway through, so that gives me an exciting, <laughs> very narcissistic ending. So thank you, my love. That's so nice. Hopefully you think I do you justice. You and Nora are in there. Aww. I wanted to do something slightly different and not like break formats or anything like that, but but write a book for not a space like in the market. It's not, mm -hmm. I don't like that sort of, but mm -hmm. I wanted to write something that would be hard to quantify. Mm -hmm. Is it about mm -hmm. culture or religion or spirituality or agnosticism? Is it about men or women? I don't know. And yeah. and it's the sort of book, I think, too, where yeah. I worked really hard to, to bring together all these disparate thinkers and threads and weave them together. And so I feel like for the really hardcore academic, they'll read it and be like, this is fun. Yeah. And for yeah. some women, it's like, oh, I've never actually even attempted nonfiction. And I did it. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so it sort of mm -hmm. lives in its own mm -hmm. space, if that makes sense. Yeah, it really does. I do really, I like that a lot. It does like open up then what we're allowed to do and then what other people, I mean, just to not create yet another how-to book where someone you know, re-describes the ending of Goodwill Hunting and then, you know, <laughs> like it just, I think it's kind of wonderful to feel interdisciplinary. And mm -hmm. I, I do, I do always think that at the beginning and at the end of the book, I always go, what three disciplines does this, what are just, what, what's, what three primary set of sources did this draw from? And I always like the fact that the answer is like, not the normal ones. Yeah. So like well, cultural history, no, 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 like personal experience. And for yes. me, usually like some kind of iteration of kind of like historical theology. And then for them, I'm like, great, done, super. I don't, I yeah. mean, it's not somebody else's brain. It's just one that's my little, that's my little braid. And I like having a little braid. Well, I think it's really important. And I feel this way about your work too, in that it puts, at least it puts me a little bit it's not on my back foot, but like I like work where I'm like, I don't know exactly what yeah. Kate believes. I don't actually yeah. know as much as you are revealing about your life and the way that you've processed and the things that you've studied and where you come from. But there's something that is yeah. certainly not prescriptive, even as you're offering that's Blessings. Nice. Well, thanks but, for saying that. I do. Yeah. I've been reading a lot of, I know people love a good list and people love a good inventory, personal inventory, but man, it is really nice to kind of swim around in someone's brain without having felt like they just gave you a prescriptive <laughs> list. Well, and it would be so antithetical to everything that you stand for, which yeah. is in a way, how do you make friends with uncertainty and how do you get comfortable with darkness and loss yeah. and hard moments yeah. and not only yeah. maintain your sense of humor, but also stay open yeah, to go yeah, yeah. to dig deeper and rather than 
Yeah, totally. Become the certainty police. Yes. Yeah, totally. Yes. Yeah. And the certainty pe- police is very compelling, but it is such <laughs> a lie. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Yeah, that's so funny. So how are you? How's your health? How are you? Everything seems gangbusters, which is probably overwhelming in its own way. <laughs> I, I'm i feeling really good right now. I just had a good scan a couple weeks ago, and I've got to wait and have one other little procedure and kind of find out where I'm at. But I think I'm in a really good spot. So that is... I can always feel sort of the horizon open up when that happens. And yeah. so I'm feeling really good. This last year was harder than I wished it were because I had this just brutal year of chronic pain where I had it's because of all the abdominal surgeries I've had. I just kept mm. it just kind of pushed over a set of dominoes. And so I really only had about 45 minutes of clear brain space a day. And that made wow. me very is it happening? Is it happening? Is it happening now? Do I have to concentrate? But I found ways to kind of fill that time with something creative and good. And then the rest of the time, honestly, I was just, I was just trying to get through as best I could. So yeah. I feel, I feel great that so much of that is cleared up. I just feel kind of like a brand new, brand new little baby. Really? So the pain yeah. has dissipated. And was there, did you ever figure out what it was? Yeah. I've been doing like a nutso regiment of different kinds of physical therapy and trying to mash it together. And just, I had a theory about if I combined a couple things and did these appointments like multiple times a day, I was like, I bet you anything it'll work. But it's just me mm-hmm. trying to gerrymander my own kind of care, but then it worked. So it took a few, it took about three months for me to even just be able to drop the amount of like intense pain meds I was on. But then all of a sudden the fog clears, a brain works again. And then I just felt, you know, just gloriously new. So I'm still in it. I still do a lot of appointments, but I just, I'm so much better than I was even a few months ago. Oh, good. Oh, Kate. I mean, you're such a fascinating person to watch in the world for all of these reasons. Again, like your in your your ability to hold conflicting ideas simultaneously and move through them and reflect them back to us. Obviously, I think you become sort of a beacon. And then how do you think obviously however many years ago, you would never have said, like, this is the space. This is my, like, this is my cabin in the culture. Come hither. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. No, never. I never would have thought that. It's true. And and also just because at the beginning, when I first started writing about, like, feeling exiled from the world of health, wealth, and happiness, (laughs) I think I was also just so lonely that the second I started to feel the companionship of having ideas and then being able to share them with other people. That was just so wonderfully addicting because I've made most of my good friends and like sort of emotional, intellectual companions for the journey by just by doing this work out loud. So it's just funny that it's changed my life so much, you know, in terms of my like network of friends or even just the even just imagining the kind of books I would write. I never, ever, 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 ever would have presumed to write like even more like a book of blessings or something like that. Cause I, before I was so disciplined into like Kate Bowler, you will stay in your lane and your lane is that you're an effing historian and you will write 
you will, those books take six years and you will sit alone until they're done. So this has been actually a much less lonely, much friendlier way of kind of sharing the the ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously sort of the great irony, right? That you were a historian specifically of prosperity gospel and this idea of like goodness uh, precedes all the good things of life, right? They're yes. they're tethered together. And then yep. you have an, a much more complex experience. And then yes. it's it's interesting just even thinking about who you are and who you're becoming and, and who you've been for people. And this idea of everything happens for a reason and other lives I've loved and, and no cure for being human, which is another gorgeous book. But it's also... I want to say, like, maybe everything does happen for a reason on some sort of grander scale, right? Like, there is some sort of... Your love for me, your love for me in that, in saying that, I really feel it because you're like, look, you did, you have stuck a landing on being in a vocationally open space. And I I do feel like everything's meaningful, you know, but it's, it's, Different than saying that everything's causal. Because yes. I I have felt like, you know, I spent my whole 20s interviewing televangelists and megachurch preachers and learning all about this very intense religious world called the prosperity gospel, which does say that that everything is super hyper-causal. You do this, you know, if you're good, good things will happen to you. If you're bad, bad things will happen to you. And so, you know, good luck person who gets stage four cancer. (laughs) Good luck. And so I, in wanting to move away from that, because I mean, the burden of that is that all of our choices then feel so fraught. And then we feel like we're always trying to, you know, we, then we're just sort of like in our, we look in our hands and all of a sudden we're like, our hands are full of puzzle pieces that don't fit. And then we're just trying to like mash them in because otherwise we won't get that beautiful feeling we get when we look at the big picture. But I totally agree though, my love, that like we do sometimes end up with these mountaintop moments where we get to look back and say, man, like some things really came together so beautifully that I couldn't have orchestrated, but now I feel the, the coherence of like, so, you know, being able to be an expert in one thing that I genuinely did learn lessons from in the end. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, to think about your books, which are largely memoir, right? But they're <laughs> also in the context of you as a historian and in writing, you know, my own book that is a blend and you're, you're contextualizing my own life against this yeah. larger backdrop, which is similar, I think, to what you do. But also for you to say, okay, I'm going to be a historian here, a diagnosing abstract from a place of remove about this corner of Christianity, and then to actually be sort of drawn by the nose forcefully into it yeah. is also quite cosmic yeah. to actually have to go into it and to bring, insert yourself into yeah. sort of the, yeah, this version that doesn't yeah. align with most of our lived experience, unless you're Joel Austin and you have like 15 $500 million? I don't know. And a lot of Ferraris <laughs> yeah. and Porsches. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I do think that was the big, I guess what happened with cancer and with the feeling of the limitations of my own life was it felt like a grand humbling 
Like, mm-hmm. Kate, whatever you thought you were going to get to do, you know, with your 80 years of academic life and your grateful fleet of graduate students and your many, many leather bound <laughs> books. I really, I had a very clear, clean ladder like sense of how it was supposed to go. And then to have that all wiped away. But then in that leveling feels so much more of like a sense of real purpose in like, well, mm-hmm. now that I'm here, <laughs> now that I'm aerial style where the people are, I like really, I, I, I felt so much more interconnected and then in a way so much freer to say, well, now that I'm here, you know, what, what else can we learn when life comes undone? And that, that sense of then connection with other people, I do think has probably been the most meaningful part of my life. And now I can't even imagine. So I've now spent maybe five years being able to, like when I go somewhere, I get to hear all of these stories of other people whose lives come undone. And that very horizontal cracked open sense of the world has honestly totally changed how I think and I I hope how I interact. Want to have conversations with incredible thinkers and leaders? Host a podcast. No, seriously, it is Such a privilege to be able to sit down with people who stretch my mind every week and share their wisdom and insights with all of you. It's like going back to school and getting my own version of a PhD. So what's another place to learn from some of the most remarkable experts alive today? Masterclass. There are more than 180 masterclass instructors, including experts in leadership, negotiation, writing, and cooking. You can learn from actor Amy Poehler, who teaches improv and performance, Carla Welch, who teaches personal style, Bobby Brown, he teaches how to put on makeup, or Esther Perel, who teaches relational intelligence. Don't miss Esther's recent episode on Pulling the Thread. These instructors become your own personal mentors, helping you gain real-life skills. I use Masterclass, and you should, too. There are more than 200 classes to pick from with new ones added every month. For example, my good friend and former Pulling the Thread guest, Emily Morse, teaches about sex and communication. And if there's anyone you want to invite into the bedroom with you and your partner, it's her. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash thread. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash thread. Masterclass.com slash thread. As you're speaking, it's like that's also the story of what you've studied at its source, right? Like the great everyone, you know, leaving everything or losing everything, being cast into the desert, like deep despair is sort of the heart of all of the, you know, Judeo-Christian religions. How do you think about, I don't even know, interestingly, like reading your books and then knowing sort of some of your interests. I loved your conversation with Elaine Pagels. I love her and her work. How do you define your faith and where do you find yeah what what interests you like what draws you in deeper That's such a big lovely question I'm I mean I'm very Jesusy so there's which is to say I feel the hilarious tension of having like 
big cosmic beliefs about things, God is love, et cetera, et cetera. And then also constantly being drawn into the absurd and wonderful particularity of like one dude's story. <laughs> and I think that's yeah. what's so funny about revelatory religion, right? Is we feel like we get a story and then we're supposed to peer through a keyhole at all of the, at the rest of life. And that is, I guess, what I find so compelling about, I, I you know, I've, studied Christian history for a long time. And I guess that's what I find so compelling about the story about how we learn to belong in the community of faith is we are, you know, we're called to a a really small set of claims about love of neighbor and a God who will never be separated from us and a story about how somehow God completes and saves the world despite our many many apocalypses and how we're like <laughs> determined to destroy ourselves and everyone and everyone around us. And like, I guess, I, I guess I, I find those, I find those set of themes endlessly fascinating over and over and over again. So like, and I, it's usually the same set of questions like, well, then what does it mean to be a person of hope? Or like, what does it mean to have courage? You know, how much, how much in the face of unknowing does it require that we constantly get back up again? God, why do you keep requiring interdependence of me? I'm not good at it and I don't like it. <laughs> and then how much how much do we get broken down and broken in by learning how to be defined by love? And like those those four little themes, I swear to God, I could be I am interested in them spiritually and intellectually forever yeah. and always. And that's I think fundamentally how I think about what are the big sort of notes in the song of what I hope is Christian faith? Yeah. So interesting. I also love Jesus and, you know, grew <laughs> up, my dad's Jewish and I sort of had this white bread version, wonder bread version of Jesus where I was like, you know, and you hear, I just like sort of grew up in the soup of yeah. parents who would probably call themselves atheists and but a deep reverence and connection to nature and this feeling of like I've been here before I can't believe I'm here again mm. why and then also just sort of a, a presencing a feeling of yeah. not aloneness and it's only in recent years have I even come to sort of pay attention to Jesus and what he was saying and then start to separate it Mm -hmm. from the stories that have been told in the centuries since or the way that he's been defined or, you know, and I'm like, oh, right, he didn't write. He didn't commit these things to pay. Like, this is a game of telephone, a cultural game, and what was lost and what have we gotten wrong and how has he been translated or interpreted in ways that he's been weaponized where it's like, that's not actually anything. It has nothing to do with what he said. And his aphorisms yeah. and who, what he did in the world is quite stunning. Yeah, yeah. Who do you, who do you like to read besides mm -hmm. sort of, who, who, who do you think that tells like a nuanced, compelling version of history that might be slightly mm -hmm. truer? Who do you look to for, for sources? I guess this one is easy for me only because I work in a divinity school. So it's a lot of me wandering like up and down a hallway being like, Warren, Warren, what do we think about original sin? You know, and then like Warren comes out with, so there's, there's a lot of, that's a little bit Monday to Friday for me. But I guess 
one of the and and it is also part of the so when students come in and they either want to be you know they nonprofit workers or social workers or a lot of chaplains and and many want to be pastors or some kind of academic so we do teach these big kind of history courses and those ones are always the time when i get a chance to kind of like rehearse and retest my own like knowledge yeah. and assumptions because I'm not a Bible scholar, but I love Bible scholars. Like, for instance, I interviewed one just recently, N.T. Wright, and he writes really beautiful. He, he'll always write like a big, fat academic book, and then he'll write the same book in an accessible way, which God bless him for it. But he he blew my mind last week when he was saying that there's this verse that's the equivalent of everything happens for a reason in the way that people read it. It's Romans 8, 28, and it's that God works, you know, for the good of all those who love him. And that's how it usually reads. And that sounds like, oh, gosh, like, if, you know, if you if you are good, then God will divinely conspire to make all the details work out. And that sounds really nice. And also something I'm pretty sure I don't agree with. And he was like, <laughs> oh, no, no, no. The actual translation is like, God works alongside all those, you know, who who love him. And it was like this, it was this wonderful translation of the cooperation God wants to have with all those who are trying to do good for others. And he was yeah. like, no, I'm, this is actually the right translation. I was like, I love a good Bible scholar for helping me. But so people like that really do encourage and inspire and challenge my own assumptions that I know what I'm reading. I also just really, really like historical theology, which is basically like just, you know, history of theological ideas over time. I do read a lot yeah. of that. And I, but in that those cases, I usually just read my friends, Warren Smith, <laughs> even Chavin, you know, people I work with. <laughs> it is anyone who's listening, regardless of whether you consider yourself interested in religion or not, I do think it's eye-opening. Just those subtle distinctions between a God, as you said, who's sort of doing things for you as long as you're obedient in your goodness versus a God, a universe that is co-conspiring and co-creating. And maybe it's not what you would choose, right? You would never like look at the menu and say like, yes, stage four cancer, young child at home, perfect. Yes, exactly. And yet yes. at the same time, like one of the sort of stunning things about this like living project yeah. Being on this planet is what we yeah. experience, what we endure, and what we become. Yes. Rather than oh my gosh. Like yes. a linear life, right? Perfectly said. That is so perfectly said. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I could not agree with that more. Yeah. And that's – it's not fun necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> it's not fun necessarily will be my new memoir title. Thank you for that. Perfect. <laughs> it's not always a great time, but it is meaningful. You know, and it's interesting too. I don't know if you've have you ever interviewed Pauline Boss, who wrote, she coined that term ambiguous loss. And so she's written several academic books about it, but sort of came up with this like idea, this, this these losses that are not so easily codified, right? And certainly not necessarily recognized as cultural rights, where you're like, oh, there's a funeral because there's a body, right? So it's like victims of 9-11, IAs, extreme homesickness, like before the time of telecommunication, yeah. ghosting, miscarriage, et cetera. And she talks about sort of the essential quality of meaning making in terms of people being able to reorient themselves 
And yet, certain things in life have no meaning, and that inherently is a meaning, which I thought was so beautiful because she's saying, you know, she's like, you can't say your child is murdered. You're not supposed to like find the meaning, right? Find the value. But like meaningless is a meaning. Yes. Which is so hard. That's a really nice like set. Parsing those things. I do think that's really good, hard work for all of us when we are trying to decide like what stories we tell ourselves about why something happened. Because sometimes, depending on like the nature of our burden, we need to tell different stories. People with you know addiction write to me all the time and say, there's parts of this story that I need to be able to say, I can act my way out of. This happened because I made these choices. And then there are parts, of course, that happened to me, the likes of mm-hmm. which I could never have set up. And so when we're always trying to decide what does something mean to me, the next always inevitable question is like, then what, how then do I act now that I know? And in some cases you kind of just have to like turn to face the abyss for a hot minute, (laughs) you know, where you're like, oh, I didn't get to choose. And then the other times we have to then say, what do I have now such that I can choose the next beautiful, difficult, hard, lovely thing. And mm. watching people make those choices, I, I, it creates awe in me. Every time I see someone like take a horrible thing and then figure out that next little sliver of agency, I could, I could watch that all day. I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift, and over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to Framebridge to have them framed right. I've been having Framebridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints, and they do a beautiful and speedy job, making them the perfect place for holiday gifts, as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do, and they confirm this for me. But Framebridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame, whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at framebridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus Framebridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. 
Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why FrameBridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit FrameBridge.com or a local FrameBridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's FrameBridge.com. This is hard to tease out, but you think about our animal nature, right? Like the very qualities of humanness, like our fear, our response to threat, the ways in which we are mammalian, right? Like that we are just... Yeah, animals on this planet trying to make good choices. And then those moments when we can sort of yeah. not overcome, but the, the, those transcendent states where you do begin to affect mm-hmm. the world and not be affected by the world. But it's that dance. I think so yeah. often we also just want to like affect the world, control, certainty, <laughs> instead of saying like, well, you're going to be, you're going to be dropping, you're mm-hmm. living in both friends. Yes. You're not masters of the world, unfortunately, as much as we constantly want to quote unquote overcome, right? Or get over something or get on top of something. Yeah. How do you, in those moments where you feel fear, where you feel your animal nature, (laughs) where you don't get to be transcendent, how do you? Yes, Yes. (laughs) absolutely. That's a perfect way of putting it. What those moments when you are not in any way transcendent, when you are made of plastic and garbage and ice cream? Yeah. How do you, how do you, how do you like work with your fear? Yeah. Wow. Because some things hit what I think of as like the emergency button, capital E, capital B, (laughs) you know, where you're like pull a thread and then you're like not wearing a sweater anymore. You're like, (laughs) oh God. And I, I have some of those buttons where for a bit, nothing seems louder to me than this is awful. This is terrible. I can't figure this out. I'm I'm never going to overcome this. And I've had feelings like that recently where I realize it's like a particular cord that gets mashed. Usually it's like urgency. Oh no, I have limited time and it might be too late. The feeling of like withdrawal of something I can never get back. Mm. You know, a relationship is gone. A a thing is over. A dream has died. That kind of feeling. So like urgency plus a loss plus then my immediate shame. And it's like, and then it's over. And then I find that my fear is so loud and I've, I have loved in those moments having the kind of friends who are not just friends, but they're like a witness to your life where mm-hmm. they say, oh, love, these buttons feel really familiar to you. I know it really feels like you can't make a choice right now. I just want to affirm that like it does feel that urgent. That is a real loss. I know it feels like you can't do something next. So that has really helped me get past the initial like flooding feeling that fear can bring. But the, I think the other bit I've just been trying to learn is that not all fear feels the same. And for a bit, the harder my life got, the more I kind of mushed them up and put them all in the same bag. So I've been scared of cancer treatment for such a long time. I feel sort of hyper alert. I get really, and then, you know, you know, like I, I used to have to travel all the time for medical travel. So I'd walk into an airport and I, I'd be like, I, my skin would prickle. I would just, I was having these like just awful saliva run thin kind of feeling. And then I realized, I think you need to start ha- like learning a clear vocabulary for fear. 
There could be thrill. There could be excitement. There could be anxiousness. There could be physical worry. There could be just hyper anticipation. So I started doing dumb things like zip lining because <laughs> I'd cry half the time. And then I was like, oh no, this is this is actually just you metabolizing fear. Or I talk to people about their scary experiences and I try to ask them like, because I find sometimes that just like you, just the right word can kind of help shade mm-hmm. out some of the different colors of how scary fear is on a cellular level to us. Yeah. No, I think about it too as, and I think maybe this is the invitation of this next stage of my life as someone who really has had my stuff together and have experienced gradations of loss, but nothing catastrophic. Although I think that the story of humanity is like nothing is catastrophic until you're dead. And then even then, is that a catastrophe? We don't know, right? Maybe it's just an invitation. But I think too about just fear of darkness, fear of chaos, fear Mm -hmm. of allowing, and the way that culturally we've assigned so many values to the night, to darkness, to the womb, the void, how, whatever you want to call it. And it's like, yeah. well, what if we actually just yeah. go into it? What happens? Yeah. 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 I like that a lot. I mean, what happens if we just take that little extra half step toward it. I mean, sometimes, sometimes we find that we're really not that bad at it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that takes a minute for our eyes to adjust to the light, but like, I mean, people all the time that were positive that they could never possibly, you know, thrive with that little, (laughs) you know, love, water, light, like all the things that you imagine makes life that natural growth. But man, are people a wonder when they are stripped down to the studs? Mm-hmm. They, I, I think people find that they are capable of incredible love for other people, that they're suddenly very like empathy just gets like turned right up because mm-hmm. they know the burdens of their own pain. I find that people are really then attuned to what life doesn't require anymore. Turns out email would probably be the first, (laughs) really the first thing to go (laughs) in that universe. But I think darkness ironically has such a bright quality to it when we kind of just scoot up a little closer. Yeah. Well, and it's like the the yin yang, like the counter polarities, like things doesn't exist. Lightness doesn't exist without darkness and shadow. And we're so scared of it. And yet at the same time, it's like, this is our invitation to wholeness. Yeah. All of the stuff that we're afraid of is what completes this whole project. I guess I always worry about becoming brittle, you know, because I think I I like did kind of a good job with the initial horror show that was cancer. And then I was like, oh, I, I learned my lessons. But then I have been a little worried that like, Gosh, having that kind of like buoyancy you're describing where you can just kind of soften up in it rather than be yeah. like, good God, I did this before. I've already yeah. become this person. I I don't want to do it again. But yeah, yeah I kind of wonder if survival is like doing what you're describing for the fourth time. Yeah. 
<laughs> most of the first or second, which did feel character building. How do you think about qualities like, you know, sort of thinking of this idea of goodness, like it, good and prosperity, if you're good, good things happen. If you're bad, that bad things happen. Yeah. What do you think is badness? What do you, do you think that evil exists? What, Yeah. how would you even, what is that? Yeah. In your worldview? Yeah. I do think evil exists, I think. And I, there's, there's just like a, there is a lovely theological term for it that I've always found really satisfying. And it's because most of ours, I think, secular paradigm for good and bad is, you know, we, we can put all kinds of things on that spectrum. But I think we imagine in our culture that like, you know, we imagine like in very therapeutic terms, like a self-expression individuation, you know, and then maybe some like bonus service, <laughs> but like that for the most part, there's kind of a flowering self-expression. And then the bad bit would be like uh, deformation into, you know, groupthink or oppression or, um, you know, mm -hmm. a, a, like a, a, a lack of self-expression. And I guess I, I still really like the growth paradigm that the therapeutic has really taught us but i really really like the theological term for for growth just that you that is sanctification that we mm. really can sort of in becoming more fully ourselves and more fully human that we are simultaneously hopefully sort of like sloughing off some of the bullshit that mm -hmm. then really does comprise evil selfishness, instrumentalization, oppression, lack of justice, you know, all the things that are like. So I I do I do like the sense that progress can be and that's why I love the language of holiness. It's like we can that we can grow more sacred as we become more human. But that does require the opposite of it, which is that we can mm. yeah, just also devolve. And oftentimes that's tragedy does that too. We just become a real dick. Having yeah. realized scarcity of resources, we're like, good, I'll get mine. Yeah. And, and that, that's, I think, turns away from other. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. And like in a, a Jungian matter, matter, you just think about like the dense shadow. And I agree. I think our job as humans is to own those shadowy parts, recognize we're all capable of yeah. evil, fear, being pushed by fear, scarcity into yeah. behaviors that we would condemn and others, and that it's our job to sort of be present with that and to be al alchemists, like just exposing that shadow to light, moving yeah. it, processing it, getting bigger, getting more whole, not by yeah. disavowing those parts, but by owning them and recognizing like, yeah. you can't escape these human instincts. They are totally. part of us. But and I think we get into trouble when we sort of otherize evil. We uh -huh. turn it into Satan or whatever. And maybe that that exists. I don't I, I don't understand it in yeah. the model of like, if God is everything, then isn't that God too? How do you understand that? Yeah. Sort of this, we're not going to be trapped by sa this, this war that we mm -hmm. have with mm -hmm. evil or the bad people over there, sort of this binary instinct. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah. Well, because I spent a weird, <laughs> you are like encroaching on a part of my brain that is like really loves to talk, <laughs> really loves to talk about it because I, uh, I spent so long, I mean, gosh, at least 15 years 
in a part of Christianity that does talk a lot about Satan and evil. And yeah. so I, you know, I've seen exorcisms. I've had people try to exorcise me. I'm, I'm weirdly chill. You, you and I are wired very similarly. <laughs> so, Cause there's like a very ethnographic interest in everything. So I'm like, Oh sure. What's going on? Oh no, please stop trying to cast, cast these demons out of me. Which just happened. Like, like at least half a dozen times. So I guess I have thought a lot about how people spiritually describe what they think evil and then the personification of that would be in their mind, which is could be, you know, demonic spirits or Satan. And and I, I think so much of it comes from, yeah, like an, an, an oppositional sense of like God is love, God is whatever. So therefore, why do we like what you described before, like the presencing? Yeah. I mean, that's such a, that's a perfect word. And so why does it feel sometimes like the things that undo us are so compelling that they feel like they overtake us? And so the personification of evil becomes such an, like a natural inc inclination. It also helps us have compassion for people who seem overtaken by things that are so terrible that we can't, we, we need another answer to like, but how, how could they possibly mm -hmm. have done that? Yeah. And it it helps us ritualize and separate from things that do take our lives apart. So people then talk about, you know, I'm not saying it's helpful, but demonization of like physical ailments. It's mm -hmm. it's in in one way, it's also trying to affirm the goodness of what someone is supposed to be. So it kind of has like a it has a really interesting effect on groups and how we think about our deepest dreams for our lives that we could be, you know, whole and healthy and but I think we've all met people where we're like what has taken over like who is driving that bus and yeah. I think it's an easier answer for people to say forces that are beyond them this episode is brought to you by progressive insurance whether you love true crime or comedy celebrity interviews or news you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue and guess what now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the name your price tool from progressive it works just the way it sounds you tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Do you personally have any – I mean, I it's like a question that's consuming for me, unsurprisingly, where I'm like, is there what, – what is it? And I recognize it as extreme shadow and also as like yeah. an archetypal energy or force that can be very distorting. Yeah. I don't know that I could say like it has a I, – I can't quite anthropomorphize it. Yeah, I hear you. You know? I love but... that this worries you. It worries – I think about this stuff too a lot. <laughs> so it actually worries me too. Well, you see it, right? You yeah, see people and you watch them get bent. You big – big cultural people and you're like oh i see if this yeah. if you sort of start as an amoral entity i can see these people getting mm -hmm. bent distorted mm -hmm. and what is that mm -hmm. yeah i i because i really haven't spiritually put a lot of energy into imagining like a personification of evil who is like working to my detriment all the time <laughs> i i have not though i I do think that that it is so genuinely hard to be good sometimes yeah. like that the the greatest evils are not you know 
murder or any of the other exciting sins. I mean, that's terrible. PSA, please don't murder. But I, I find that the, the most compelling ones are, are just always the easiest ones. Like, mm-hmm. you know, slander, condescension, jealousy, withdrawal, our, our deep desire to have a lack of love and call it Oh my gosh. And lately call it self-care. I'm obsessed with these news stories about people who choose great evil, but they mask it in like, I just really had to choose me. (laughs) What? (laughs) Cause it is, you know, cause most of what is like good and I think holy and lovely also just doesn't also doesn't have a great reason for it. Like we look at mother Teresa and people like that, with awe and a little confusion because because sometimes the path to good requires so much self-sacrifice that like we want a million other reasons to not choose that road. So I'm not saying the monastic ideal is like the the only one that helps us like create a distinction between good and bad, but I do find that most of our our conception of evil is so exaggerated because the evil we would choose is already so acceptable to us. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I guess I think of it too, just listening to you and and I just think of it as like a density or not a gravitational pull because I also like ha- take issue with the way that our culture is structured as like, we just need to get out of here and up there, like the ascension instead of yes. sort of recognizing it as a cycle of bringing yeah. us down and deeper into ourselves and then and before we go up, you know, some sort of spiral. But there is a density, a tariness, I think, to some of those sticky instincts. Yeah. I find evil is a really helpful category when I think about like structural evil. When I, you know, I've been, I almost bankrupted my family with medical bills. I, I have spent tens of hundreds of what feels like thousands of hours on the phone with someone named Linda, who is hired by a company designed to have sent me an insane and absolutely irrational bill for two needles that will then, you know, (laughs) prevent anyone I love from keeping their bungalow. Or for example, the future of genetic testing that will be all of our information will be bought by companies that will be then used to exclude my offspring from receiving fair access to healthcare. Like we don't really have to look very far around us yeah. <laughs> to know that genuine evil rules the primary logic of structures that, that like do us harm. And so in those versions, I, sometimes I, I feel like the personification of it helps give me a better sense of justice and a stronger sense of like, these are, as you know, my preacher friends would say, powers and principalities. And they would use language like that. And I find it very dramatic and I sort of find it helpful. Yeah. Well, I think structure of any kind, shape, right? So that it's not so amorphous. And I, you know, because I feel this way, or this is what I was trying to do and on our best behavior was to sort of give shape and structure to sort of an oppressive, dominance-based patriarchy in the way that it shows up in our lives instead of saying sort of using language where it's like it, they, it becomes sort of a boogeyman where you're like, what are we even talking about? And how is this alive in us? Or systemic racism is another example where you're like, actually, 
you you have to define it. Yes. You can't just deny it. Yeah. And what is a system of misogyny? What is a system of racism? What is a system of yeah. healthcare? You know, whatever yeah. it is, like then you can start to undo it. Yeah. But otherwise yeah. you're sort of casting around at this like terror yeah. in a way that feels maddening. I do. It's funny. I think you're totally right that our language for evil can be so broad, like so, yeah, so diffuse and amorphous that it can't name things that undo us. Yeah. Like clinical trial consent protocols, just to name one. But it can also then be so individualistic that it's like only the Unabomber, you know, right. only. And who, you know, just we're, we have, I think we do get caught, especially in American I think religion where we either go hyper individualistic and we imagine each person along this sort of path of individual progress or so collective in our imagination that we have yeah. no account of I think our own our own sin and our own progress and our own culpability and our own adherence our own involvement or engagement with these systems and I think the last yeah. few years and decades have been so helpful and instructive as difficult as they've been for people to recognize, oh, right, okay, I understand systemic racism yeah. now is something that I'm participating in and I am a part of, even though I never subscribed, I never made a conscious agreement to participate in this, yet I understand how it's alive in me and alive in the world. I think it's like what has to happen, even in these conversations about any sort of structured evil, darkness, badness is to bring it into our bodies and to yeah. say, I recognize that this is alive in me. I recognize like, I don't want to pay a higher premium, you know, so that Kate <laughs> gets appropriate care, whatever it is. Yeah. Yes. I want my bonus as a pharma executive, you know, all of these things that like are very easy to rationalize, but until we sort of yeah. recognize it and then identify it in ourselves yeah. As something that's also collective, we can't undo it. I don't think. Yeah. yeah. To own the own the darkness. Yeah. One of the reasons why I've always really loved thinking about like the the cultural like the big broad cultural scripts that we tell ourselves about how we imagine like what whether our lives are going to work out, frankly. Mm -hmm. Lately I've been working on a history of self-help, so I've been reading hundreds of self-help. Oh, my <laughs> <laughs> I just so I've been sort of thinking a lot about how much we expect for ourselves, what our experience of our entitlements are, really. Yeah. And then because the follow up questions is like, well, then what do we owe one another? I love that. I'm really hopeful that that we're evolving past our our very hyper individualistic understanding of like my health, wealth, and happiness is the great goal is the great goal. <laughs> And that we're trying to like fold in a more collective and I hope generous sense that like Oof. our, 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 our lives will require love. Our lives will require courage and interdependence, you know, and that that's, it's probably going to never fall along any of our, our demographic, political, religious, sociocultural, you know, dreams that advertising companies have for us <laughs> but yeah. instead it's going to require a very collective sense of 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 what what can we become ooh kate i can't wait i hope that that's 
is that a book for all of us or is that an academic okay. text? <laughs> I know, exactly. I will write it just for you. That's what I'll do. May I please have that book? I exactly. love that. And I feel like the the paradigm shift required for all of us and the way, like the bigger umbrella for that world is also personal responsibility. It's like, yes, individual culture has, in, this rugged individualism has gone so far to become depraved and yes, there is a lot of value in cleaning up our stuff before we project it onto each other. And so it's like, it's a personal responsibility. Yes, take care of yourself. Take care of your yeah. your messes. And in service of something that's so much bigger than any one of us. Yep. It's so true. <sighs> if I could pick one thing that everyone would have to do that no one will do. I just want everyone to like join the Rotary Club or like some kind of Girl Scout organization or just realize that like so much of my sense of responsibility, it no longer weekly requires, weekly requires that I care about things other than myself. Yeah. I'm imagining that at some point our endlessly book club model of what we think collective action is going to break down and we'll just all go back to being weird Rotarians. That's that's my that's my prophetic imagination. That's the title. Weird Rotarians unite. I love it. Kate is a very special human with a mind I deeply admire, both for her historian sensibility, that leaning towards a larger context or frame in which to find ourselves paired with her deep, deep humanity and the way that she lets us see her insides against this bigger tapestry of her outsides. And I also love her because she is obviously a person of deep faith and writes about religion and writes books that are memoirs and also books of blessings, but there is nothing pushy about her system of belief. In fact, I would call it really just faith, a person of faith who's willing to hold a lot of people's lives in her experience without projecting how we should all live. So... I love her podcast. I love her books. I love her sensibility and the accessibility of her feelings is really something to behold. She is not frozen or hardened. She is so soft and all of her experiences are miraculously accessible to her, even as she's experienced many hard things. If you liked today's episode, please rate and review and tell a friend. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at elisalunan.com. While there, please sign up for my Substack. I send a short note every Wednesday about topics that are aligned with this show and a deeper dive most Sundays. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan. And finally, if you haven't already, please consider picking up a copy of my New York Times bestselling book, On Our Best Behavior. The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good, available wherever you get your books. It's an exploration of how women have been conditioned for goodness, men for power, 
and all the ways we've been programmed to police ourselves and each other according to these cultural ideas of what it is to be a good woman. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread. Available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Mary-Kate McDonough, Ali Brockman, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.